the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm sure you can tell from my voice that I am not Georgine. Uh, I am Joanne Fuso and I'm filling in for her today. Georgine is on a mission trip in India. I think she's returning sometime today. Uh, but I'm excited to be with you. Uh, uh, we have a special guest today. I'm going to share who that is shortly. But I wanted to tell you a little bit about who I am, because probably a lot of you don't know who I am. So I am Joe Anfuso. I am the founder and president of a Christian nonprofit based in Vancouver, Washington, called Forward Edge International. And uh, we've been in existence for about 35 years, started in Northern California in 1983, moved up here to the Northwest in 1989. So this is our 35th year. Uh, we did start out as primarily a short-term missions agency, sending volunteer teams from the West Coast and all across the country to many different countries, 34 different countries over the years to do a variety of things, build children's homes, uh, provide urgently needed medical care, share the gospel. And in recent years, we, have, uh, we now have programs for vulnerable children, several different countries, Nicaragua, Mexico, Haiti, Cuba, Kenya, and Uganda. And we also respond to natural disasters, sending volunteer teams out. I just got back from Puerto Rico, actually, uh, with a team of people helping some folks get back in their home after Hurricane Maria. So that's who I am. And now, to let you know who we're going to be chatting with today, very excited to have my friend Paul Young with us. And many of you know Paul as the author of The Shack. Paul also has authored a number of other books, including Crossroads, Eve, and most recently a nonfiction book entitled Lies We Believed About God. Uh, very excited to have you here, Paul. Welcome. It's great to be with you, Jill, always. Thank you. Honored. Oh, honored to have you. So I know this is, I'm going to start out with a question you've probably answered at least a thousand times, but there are probably uh, many listeners that have never really heard the story. Uh, so uh, I would like it if you could just share um, how The Shack, the book The Shack, came into existence, because it's really that book that uh, propelled you into the life you're leading now, which is one I don't think you uh, anticipated. Uh, so could you just briefly do that? Just share the story of how that came into existence, The Shack. Sure. I'll, I'll give you the bird's eye view. Okay. and. Uh... And yes, you're absolutely right. It, it was never on my bucket list. It wasn't intended. Nobody saw it coming. And uh, I, ne I never intended to be a published author. And I've written stuff all my life, you know, like anybody does. You write poetry or songs or short stories. You give them to your friends and family, and they think it's great because they're your friends and family. And, uh, and so when I wrote The Shack, um, I, I'd been think about publishing it. It didn't even cross my mind. And um, I was doing it as a Christmas gift. Kim, mm -hmm. who I'm married to, 
have been saying for about four years, you know, someday as a gift for our children, would you write something that puts in one place how you think because you think outside the box? And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But um, when it eventually got put in print, she said, you know, I was thinking four to six pages. And, but uh, she didn't mm-hmm. tell me. So, um, you know, I got it done for Christmas, made uh, 15 copies in Gresham at mm. Office Depot, a little uh, photocopier machine and put a spiral bound thing on the side and a little plastic cover. Mm. And those 15 copies, six went to our kids. Um, wow. Jim got a copy, I got a copy, and the extras I gave to my friends. And I went back to work. I mean, mm. it literally never crossed my mind. Wow. And those 15 copies did everything I ever wanted that book to do. Mm. Um, you know, when my kids eventually actually read it, it was, it impacted them in, in different ways, each of them differently. And, um, mm. and that was my gift to them. I'm trying to say, look, you know, I, I'm a missionary kid, preacher's kid. Um, I grew up inside modern evangelical fundamentalism mm-hmm. and I don't want you growing up with the God that I did. Um, because I actually don't believe that that God exists anymore. And, you know, it's just putting 50 years of working through, through some of my own great sadnesses into a story form mm. um, as, a, as a doorway for my own children to walk into uh, a deeper sense of knowing the character and nature of God um, as I've come to know God. And centered in the Trinity, you know, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So I got it done made the 15 copies, went back to work. I gave the extras to my friends. They started giving it to their friends. We actually pooled a little uh, uh, pooling of money together to make 15 more copies at Office Depot that they could send to their friends. And um, it wasn't long before I started getting emails from people that I didn't know hmm. who were asking me about the the story because they were friends of friends. And and some of them even wanted to fly to Portland to have a conversation with Mackenzie because on the first manuscript, as a joke, I would put the mm. shack by Mackenzie Allen Phillips <laughs> with William P. Young. Uh, and if you know me at all, you know that I've never gone by William. I'm one of right. four generations of William, to, none of who go by William, uh, and um, which turned out to be fun, too, because eventually friends would call me up and go like, have you read this book by this William Young? And just <laughs> Any thought, relation? Oh, he's, a her- <laughs> he's a heretic, you know, <laughs> from what I heard. And um, But it was funny, and um, and that started a chain reaction. And the, <clears throat> the emails that I was getting, I didn't know how to respond to, and so I sent an email to an author I had met, and the only author I'd ever met, and actually was his driver for about six hours one day. And I just sent him the manuscript going like, okay, so I'm getting these emails. I don't even care if you read the manuscript, but but how do you respond to emails like this? Because I don't know, and I don't know what I'm doing. And is this normal? And, um, and you know, and he was nice and kind on an email response saying, well, you know, I'll, I'll try to get to it and take a look at it um, and give you my thoughts, but it might take six months. And Three days later, he's calling me back going, like, why did you send me that manuscript? And I'm going, like, uh, I have enough shame in my history that it's, hmm. you know, you get a you get a question like that, you, you start backpedaling. It's like, no, just throw it out, you know? Yeah. And, uh, um, and he said, no, I can't print the pages fast enough. And I went, what? Hmm. 
So he had two friends, um, and the three of them wanted to turn it into a movie. He's from California, and that started the whole conversation about, well, maybe we should put it into mass market print before we do that. And that's mm. sort of the genesis of where it all came from. But it, it never was intended on my part to become something published and available to the world. Wow. So how many copies has it sold now? <laughs> Somewhere north of 23 million, wow. which uh, puts it in in rare company. And it's just God's great sense of humor as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And I remember you telling me the number of languages it's been translated into, and, and most recently there was talk of it being translated into Arabic. Yes, that's correct. So it's in about 50 now. Right. And there are some more coming online. So it, it continues to do its thing all around the world. Wonderful. It's been amazing. That's awesome. And the, and the movie did eventually get made, you know, which I've it seen. It eventually got made. And enjoyed. That, and, yeah. and really well made. Yes, I saw I it. I really, really enjoyed it. So I have a number of topics that I wanted to talk to you about, Paul. I'm, I doubt that we'll get through all of them, but... Uh, I'm looking forward to whatever it is we get to today. And I wanted to uh, start out uh, by uh, talking about one thing that I think would be good to address right out of the gate. There are some church folks, as you know, who have a somewhat negative opinion of you because they think you are a universalist. Now, I actually know this from personal experience because you were nice enough to write an endorsement for a book I wrote several years ago, and I, to my surprise, I received a couple of emails from folks who expressed concern about this based on their perception of you as a universalist. So I wanted to give you an opportunity right out of the gate to address this concern. In what way are you a universalist, and in what way are you not a universalist? Ah, that's a great question, and, and I'm glad you asked it that way, because there are ways in which I am, and there are ways in which I am not. And, um, and I think that's part of the confusion that people have. They, they think that it's a singular term. So mm-hmm. if they say, are you a universalist, they think that they know what they're asking, mm-hmm. and they assume that I'm one of whatever they're asking about. Mm-hmm. And um, so let's just back off a little bit and go like, okay, so what are the kinds of universalists? Well, one kind that I am is that I believe the entire creation Every subatomic particle, every uh, human being, every everything in creation was created in Christ, and um, um, so the the universal scope of creation is created in, for, by, and through Jesus. And uh, not anything that has come into being has come into being apart from Him, and that we move and live and have our being in Him. So. Mm. If that makes me a universalist, then I, I'll say, yeah, I, I'm guilty of that. Um, there is a kind of universalism that says, so it doesn't really matter which road you take. Um, you know, all roads lead to God, and uh, I'm not one of those. But in fact, very clearly in the book, um, uh, I, put, I put this little piece in there just so I wouldn't be accused of that. Mm-hmm. And it's where... Um, um, Mackenzie says to Jesus, so do all roads lead to Papa? In, in most books, I think it's on page 184. Um, and Jesus laughs and says, no, most, most roads don't lead anywhere, mm. but I will go down any road to find you. 
Mm-hmm. And and I love that yeah. because that's, that's the good. statement of the incarnation mm-hmm. that that Jesus would enter into our brokenness, into our lostness, into our humanity, that He would go down any road to find us. And um, and so I'm really comfortable with that. But you know, some of my own people and and I I identify modern evangelical fundamentalists as my own people, and uh, that includes the ones that won't read my book or are mad about it or whatever. Right. And, um, well, we're going to have to uh, take a little bit of a break now. Hold that thought. I okay. know there's more you mm-hmm. want to share All on right. that topic, but we have to yep. take a little commercial break. We'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm Joe Fuso filling in for Georgine, and I'm here with Paul Young. And uh, Paul was just sharing... Uh, his perspective on universalism and which way, which ways he is and which way he is not a universalist. Uh, Paul, if you can remember where you left off, why don't you pick it up from there? Sure. So we've covered two kinds, um, that all of creation is created uh, by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and specifically created in Christ. If anybody wants to read a fantastic book, it's written by George MacDonald, who's the one that led... Mm-hmm. Lewis into a deeper relationship um, with Jesus, and it's called Creation in Christ, um, Unspoken Sermons, Creation in Christ, and it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's in my top five books. Um, the, uh, also, you could read uh, a, a book uh, by Athanasius called On the Incarnation of the Word of God, and it was written in 321, I think, or in the early 300s. Um, mm-hmm. So he's right in the early church and uh, also uh, is centered around this whole conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, the other way is that all roads lead to God, and I said, no, I, I don't believe that at all, and I put that in the book very clearly. Mm-hmm. There are two other kinds of universalism, and both of these get me in trouble mm-hmm. because there's a difference of opinion theologically within the, the Christian community. One is universal salvation, and the other one is universal reconciliation. And you need to understand the differences between those two. Mm -hmm. Uh, Universal salvation uh, has to do with the fact that all of creation, um, that the salvific work of Jesus accomplished it for the entire creation. And we'll talk about that in a second. Mm -hmm. Um, That is the dominant view that's been held throughout the ages, especially... Um, in the first 500 years of the early church. And, um, and that is that, that when, when Jesus died, we all died. And when he rose, we all rose. And that includes every single person who was ever conceived. So that is universal salvation. The, the last one is universal reconciliation. That, and that is the view that eventually that every single person will be ultimately restored in relationship back to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So understanding the difference between those two is important. Mm-hmm. Um, universal salvation, I, that, yep, I hold to that, as opposed to that uh, Jesus died for only a few people, and only those few people will actually make it. Um, I, I am very comfortable standing in the uh, stream of historic... Christianity that goes all the way back to the early church, which would include Athanasius in the book that I told you about. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would include, uh, uh, um, you know, your major 
theologians of the early church, that all of creation um, was effective, effectively um, saved in Christ, that there are three tenses for salvation in the New Testament. Um, there is the salvation that is a finished work of Jesus, that he died once for all, that if I be lifted up, I will drag, which is the Greek word, I will drag all men to myself, or Paul writing and saying, you know, this is a statement that is true and worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all mankind, or Hebrews saying he died once for all, or Corinthians 5, when he died, we died, or Romans uh, chapter 3 and Galatians 3, um, where they talk about the fact that uh, Jesus is bigger than Adam. If Ab- Adam effectively um, destroyed humanity in terms of the brokenness of sin, uh, are we to uh, believe that Jesus is less than Adam or an afterthought to Adam? And this is the stance of the early church, that of course not. Mm. So that when he died, we died, and when he rose, we, dro- we rose. So does that mean that we're automatically reconciled face-to-face with God the Father? No, because most of us are ignorant of it, or we want to hold on to our sin or our our brokenness. And so even though Jesus has accomplished it, it has to still be worked out, and that's the second tense of salvation. The third tense is that ultimately, with the resurrection of the body and everything else, that that salvation will be fully affected. But... The salvation still has to be worked out. What God has worked in you has to be worked out. But the question of whether you're included in the salvific work of Jesus is a settled question. And and in that regard, I am a universalist. That is, I believe in universal salvation. And I'm very comfortable standing in the stream of historic Christianity um, as well as the New Testament um, inside that. The, the last one, and I think this is where people get confused or they lump me into, mm-hmm. and that is universal reconciliation, mm-hmm. that there is a doctrine that says that ultimately every human being will be fully restored back to relationship with God. Now, <clears throat> even though I do not hold that as a doctrine, I do hold it as a hope. Mm-hmm. I do hope that's true. And Colossians talks about that and praying for it, that um, the reconciliation of all things, that every knee actually will bow and every tongue will confess, mm-hmm. not out of coercion, mm-hmm. but out of worship. And so the tension for me in the New Testament is held between the respect that God has for your ability to continue to say no to the relationship mm-hmm. and the finished work that Jesus has accomplished. Free will. Um, that is, he died, that he died once for all, and he is going to pursue you. So you're never going to be able to escape the love of God. And that's the last two verses of Romans 8, right? That says, here are the things that cannot separate you from the love of God. Anything present and anything future, that covers a lot. Mm-hmm. Not life nor death. So death cannot separate you from the love of God, nor any created thing, which means you don't have the capacity to separate yourself from the love of God. And this opens up a very different way of looking at heaven and hell, for example. Mm -hmm. So hell, then, is you're holding on to your garbage, your brokenness, your self-centeredness, while in the embrace of the love of God. 
because God who is love does not create anything that is not good. And the purpose of this tension is to draw you back toward helplessness and therefore toward love. And heaven is, you know, you're in the same embrace of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but you want to let go of your stuff. If you want to deal with it, then then the presence of love will be heaven to you. If you don't, then the presence of love ongoing will be hell to you. Mm. And, um, and the process, because uh, everyone is salted with fire, right? That's the scripture. Everyone has to deal with fire. But is that fire opposed to you or opposed to your brokenness and sin? And I believe that fire is the affection of God that is opposed to everything in you that keeps you from being fully alive and fully free, everything that is not of love's kind. As George MacDonald says, this is a God who will not stand idly by while anything that is not of love's kind remains in you. And so the gospel is not about magic. It's not about, oh, if I say a sinner's prayer, which is kind of magic, right? It's not in scriptures, but if... um, if I say a sinner's prayer, I can move from one side of the equation to the other side. No, the gospel is that Jesus already moved you. The good news is you were included. Mm. You know, he doesn't have to die for you again. Mm. He doesn't have to, you know, this was done. And he did it with the only vote that we made as humanity was to kill him. That was our vote. Mm. And he took our vote and turned it into the place of our adoption. So the good news is, not that you can receive Jesus into your life. The good news is that Jesus has already received you into his life, into his relationship with the Father, into his anointing and the Holy Spirit. Mm. That's the good news. And, um, and he did it, with again, without your vote. It's not of works. A lot of what modern, my modern evangelical heritage has told me is that you still have to save yourself. Yes, he just did it as, and opens up the possibility that uh, you can be saved, but you still have to, you know, do the magic stuff in order to get saved. And, um, and I think they're confusing the two tenses of salvation. No, the finished work of Jesus is finished. He did it, and he included you. Wonderful. Everything that was, that was accomplished was done, and you got included into it. Now, he has such a high respect for you, he's not going to simply change your mind about the things that are broken in you. The invitation is, together we will work on the things that are not of love's kind. Okay. We're going to, that's wonderful, Paul. We're going to have to move away for a moment here again. We'll be right back with you, Paul Young on the Georgine Rice show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Okay. We're back on the Georgine Rice show. This is Joe Anfuso with Paul Young. And we've been having a fascinating conversation uh, about Paul's perspective on what Jesus did for all of us once and for all. And I do want to uh, kind of move into another different but related topic now, Paul, but just to summarize what you were saying, tell me if, you, if I'm saying this uh, accurately or if it aligns with what you were trying to share there, uh, that Jesus did, in fact, die once and for all. Uh, and uh, that is the work of salvation that's already been done through Christ, through Jesus, and the work of Jesus on the cross. Uh, Reconciliation is something somewhat different from that, Uh, and it it involves uh, choices that that people make, Uh, and 
your perspective would be uh, with none of us knowing with any certainty exactly what God's judgment is going to look like. Your uh, position is that you would be hopeful that in some way God uh, has a means by which all would be reconciled to him. Is that close? I think that's I think that's fair. Yep. Okay. And the, and the difference is like the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. You can, right. you have the power to forgive someone. Right. And, and it, but reconciliation is relational. Right. You know, it's a two way um, thing. Yeah. You can. Yep. Yep. And, and we still, um, uh, have to move in terms of reconciliation, but everything's been done for that to be even a possibility. Right. It's the reconciliation piece that is, it is now part of our experience. Right. Okay, so I want to you know, transition away, as I said, to a topic that's different, but I think in some ways related. Uh, so here, what's your take on this, Paul? There's an expression Christ followers often use to explain how they try to relate with people engaged in what they consider to be sinful, sinful behavior, and that expression is hate the sin but love the sinner, uh, which... And my experience is more easily said than done. And while we might make loving the sinner our goal, we often fail to do that in a way that's believable and authentic. And here's my question. Why do you think Christians have such a hard time genuinely loving people who they believe are violating biblical morality? And and do you have any specific practical suggestions on how Christ followers can be better at doing that? Ah. Boy, those are really broad questions and good questions. Um, the uh, I think the biblical view is is love love the other and hate the sin that is in yourself. Hmm. You know, it's it's the log mm-hmm. in your own eye that you keep batting people upside the head with. Mm-hmm. And um, and I and I think uh, because we have not had an inclusive sense of the salvific work of Jesus, that is, that it involved everyone. Mm-hmm. That we still see people as us and them. Yeah. Other. So, yeah. you know, we, yeah, we still mark people in different categories. And, and then we label them according to, um, you know, their, their behaviors. Uh, and a lot of those behaviors, it could be even as simple, uh, you know, some of us grew up where smoking was enough to put you into a category of which, you know, you were an unbeliever or you went to that other church. That mm-hmm. was different than yours. I mean, it, it, it was crazy how how deeply divided mm-hmm. we could make humanity. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think part of it is that we've got to stop playing the Holy Spirit in the life of others and trust the Holy Spirit in the life of others. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to also do the work in our own lives to see where we are blind, uh, where we feel like somehow we deserve this, at least we made the right decision to... You know, and this goes back to our view of salvation as, as you know, crossing the divide, saying the magic words ourselves. That something somehow we, something we did, yeah. Yeah, and um, so uh, part of that is the work that we have to do in our own lives. Because, um, mm-hmm. uh, frankly, we express the love toward others that we actually have for ourselves. And I think a lot of religious people are very conflicted. I certainly was and have been through much of my life. Um, where I saw a beautiful picture of the of the goodness of God, and I I wanted other people to experience that part, but at the same time, you know, my own hurt and damage was all hidden inside, and 
my own inability to love myself was mm-hmm. was uh, right at the, at the center of how then I would try to express love to others, which was a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, part part of the answer to your question, I suppose, is that we have to do the work ourselves. And um, you know, I I had a a friend, my friend, I have a friend up in Seattle named uh, Jim Henderson, and he went on eBay and he bought a atheist soul. I don't know. Mm. You can, didn't know you could do that, but uh, there was an really? atheist who was selling his soul on eBay, <laughs> oh, auctioning wow. it off, and he, he bought it for $504. Wow. And, um, and, it, and it was a recession, you know. So uh, <laughs> the atheist souls just don't go. <laughs> the, um, but uh, it was Hemet Mehta, who was the atheist, and, mm-hmm. and Hemet had said that for every $10 somebody paid for his soul, he'd spend an hour in the church of the person's choice. So 504 mm. added up to a lot of hours. Mm. And um, so uh, Hemet, you know, had a job and all this, and he had a friend named um, uh, Matt Casper, Matt and Matt took up Hemet's challenge with Jim, and Jim and Matt went around the country visiting churches, different kinds, all kinds, mm. and then wrote a book together called Jim and Casper Go to Church, which you can get at your <laughs> Christian bookstore. Mm. And um, it was a perspective of church from... Uh, uh, a pastor, because Jim was a was a vineyard pastor for a lot of years, and an atheist together, mm. and fascinating. Mm. So uh, Matt had read the shack and and uh, told Jim that he wanted to meet me, and Jim had invited me to speak at a writers conference in San Diego, and Matt lives near there, so I I got to meet Matt, and the first thing Matt said to me was, "You know, I'm an unbeliever, right?" And I said, no, you're not. He goes, oh, yeah, I am. I said, no, you're really not. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, I almost like I offended him. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, belief is actually an activity. Uh, it's not a category. And, and you know what? I'm from those people who really have held on to creating it as a category. Um, but we've never been able to find the believe-a-meter, you know, that thing that hooks to your heart or your head that tells you if you believe enough to be in. Hmm. He goes like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I said, oh, well, forget all that. I said, just tell me some of the things that you actually believe in. Mm-hmm. He said, you, you want to know what I believe in? I said, yeah. He said, nobody asked me what I want to, you know, what I believe in. They always ask me what I don't. And mm-hmm. um, I said, no, I want to know what do you believe in? And he thought for a minute, he said, I'll tell you what I believe in. I believe in the way that I love my kids. Mm. He said, and these are his words. He said, you know, I didn't know I had the capacity to love like this until I had my own children. But I would die for them. I would step in front of a bullet for them when they're sick. I, if I could, I would take on their sickness so that they wouldn't suffer. I said, oh. Well, this is obviously not romantic love. Could you define this love as other-centered, self-giving love? He said, that's exactly what it is. Hmm. But see, other-centered, self-giving love is the definition of agape, hmm. is the definition of God's love and, and who God is. God is other-centered, self-giving. That's agape. So he's telling me that he believes in agape. Hmm. And um, I said, so... Matt, what do you think about life? And Jim had already told me that Matt is is really 
fascinated by the natural order, you know, mm. um, we would call the created existence. And, and that launches into the elegance of quantum theory and, um, and the intricacies of how this whole universe uh, is uh, coherent. Um, and so then, then I asked him, I said, so can someone relate to your children whom you love in a way that is simply and absolutely wrong? He said, no question, absolutely. Mm. I said, Matt, so, so far you told me that you believe in love, not just any kind of love. You believe in other-centered, self-giving love. You believe in truth, and you believe in life. And you started the conversation by telling me that you were an unbeliever. Mm. And he goes, I know, I know what you're doing. <laughs> and I said, I said, no, this is, this is language that, that works for you. And, um, and I said, yeah, I believe that 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 love and life and that truth is personified and, and incarnated in the person who is Jesus, no question. Mm. But, um, but we are on the same page, just our language is a little different, and, um, and mm. moving in the same direction. Mm. And he, uh, we talked for another two hours, and wow. when he left, he gave me a hug, and Jim, who was standing next to us, turned to me after Matt left, and Matt had said something to me as, as he hugged me and Jim said, Paul, that is the greatest compliment I've ever heard Matt Casper give another human being. Cause what Matt said to me as he hugged me was, I'm just glad to know that you exist. <laughs> and, um, so yeah. he believes in me now. He yeah. believes in what he sees in my life. Yeah. And, uh, and awesome. it's opened up a huge conversation and now they've written another book. I wrote the forward for it. It's called saving Casper. And he, and he, he calls me up and he says, <laughs> Uh, just so you know, I'm still an unbeliever. Or I, and uh, I laughed. You said, but I'd, would you be willing to write the forward? Huh. And I said, absolutely. I don't ever get asked by an atheist to write a forward for a book they've written. Yeah. And, um, and I wrote it. And then the Christian publisher had more trouble with my forward than they did with the rest <sighs> of the book. And <laughs> it was so um. funny. Um, and Matt thought that it offended me. And he wrote me this really kind letter. And he says, he says, Paul, is there a way that we can work this out? Because uh, you have to remember, we're dealing with Christians. It's baby steps. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I just thought well, that was so funny. What stands out to me about that story, Paul, is the way that you interacted with him with respect. And you weren't, like, trying to convince him of something or argue with him or debate with him. I mean, you were drawing him in, you know, with a very respectful, loving attitude. So we are well, going to, and, and yeah. also it's some, I'm including, I'm including him yes. in the conversation, right. of course, because I believe he's a part of it. Yeah. You're not saying I'm better than you and here's why. Correct. Yeah, so exactly. we, we're going to be transitioning in a way again, and I'm going to shift gears on you one more time and look forward to hearing more from you, Paul Young. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm Joe Anfuso here with Paul Young. We've been having a fascinating conversation that I want to continue right now with you, Paul. And I've got another question to throw at you. And uh, in addition to, well, as a part of your answer, I'm hoping you'll share a specific story that I've heard you share in the past, and I'll, I'll try to cue that up for you. But here's the question. One thing... And, and this has really been my experience. That's, it's always disappointed me, even grieved me, 
about the way the church uh, so easily, uh, how Christians so easily separate themselves from others, other Christians in particular, because of disagreement about peripheral areas of doctrine, things like eschatology, methods of baptism, gifts of the Holy Spirit. Seems to me that Jesus's prayer in John 17, that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one, should trump such divisiveness. So the question is, why do you think Christ followers often fail to make unity and loving one another higher priorities than agreement on non-central areas of doctrine. And the story I'm hoping you'll tell at some point in your response to the question is the story that I've heard you share about your mom when she was a nurse and she was Uh, participating. Okay. Say no more. Okay. There you go. Yeah, I got it. So, uh, yeah, just to cue that up, you know, when the shack came out, my, my mom heard about it first from her doctor and her hairdresser. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and she wasn't even, uh, she didn't even tell them that I was her son because she hadn't read it yet, and she wasn't sure. I mean, I've always been sort of the, I don't know, the white sheep of the family and uh, uh, the one who strayed away from the theological traditions of of my father. And um, so so she tried to read it. I mean, she got the book, and she got to the place where Papa God comes through the door for the first time, and if anybody knows the book, you know that God the Father is a large black African-American woman. Mm-hmm. Um, based in part, by the way, um, of a woman who uh, I love dearly here in, in Portland. Mm. And um, um, Renee Greenwich uh, was part yeah. of the persona from which I built the, mm. the character I didn't know of, of God the Father. Yeah, isn't that sweet? Mm. So, um, so uh, when Papa came through the door, my mom just shut the book and she picked up the phone and she called my sister and said, Debbie, your brother is a heretic. And <laughs> she meant it. And yeah. she got stuck right there. Mm-hmm. And um, and the story of how she got unstuck is just absolutely one of those mm-hmm. um, riveting things where you, you get to see that God, who is good all the time, is involved in the details of our lives. And And here's how my mom got unstuck. And then we'll get back to your question, because I think it mm-hmm. frames it really well. And that is in 1946, uh, my mother went into nurses training in Victoria Jubilee Hospital up in Victoria, B.C. Three-year nurses training. She wanted to become a medical missionary. She was 18, single. And um, 1946, um, you know, you didn't countermand her a doctor. Doctors were in charge. Mm -hmm. It was a holy profession. Right. Virtually all masculine. Right. Um, my God, mother would God say like that if a doctor, yeah, yep. If a doctor stepped on the path, you stepped off. If they walked in the chart room, you all stood up until they were done. Um, you never disagreed with a doctor. You just, you know, it was uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and doctors. And, <laughs> and from their point of view, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> so, uh, so that's the environment. And she was German Baptist, um, meek and mild. Uh, uh, submiss- submissive kind of person. Well, three months into nurse's training, a woman comes into the hospital and she's bleeding. And her chart indicates that she had had five late second trimester, early third trimester miscarriages in a row. Her name was Mrs. Munn. She was married to Reverend Munn, the senior pastor of the Anglican Church in the city. And um, mm. they'd, had, they'd had five times they'd lost the child late, you know, way past when you can feel the baby kick 
and and active and five times. This is 1946, so there's no NICU, there's no Mm -hmm. neonatal. Mm -hmm. The state of the art at the time was basic chicken incubators, you know, that they could warm a a baby in, but, Mm. you know, premature babies just didn't survive. Um, So she comes into the hospital bleeding. They They had decided to try one more time for a child, and she was six and a half months pregnant. And, um, and the doctor examines her, who, by the way, was a, a member of their church. And he says, I am so sorry, but your life is in danger. We're going to have to take the baby. So he sets up an emergency C-section, grabs the night nurse to assist, and, my, and, and a student nurse to assist to learn and to, the, to do all the cleanup. It was my mom. Mm. So at, at 18, my mother, three months into nurse's training, she said she'd just gotten her cap which meant she looked cooler but didn't know anything. <laughs> and she gets pulled into an emergency C-section in which the doctor delivers a one-pound baby boy. Mm. One pound, wow. the size of a stick of butter. Mm. And, um, wow. you know, our, our third grandchild, Houston, was born premature, four pounds and a half an ounce. And so he has a picture of his entire fist mm. with room to spare inside my son's wedding band. Wow. And uh, this, and this, this is, is one pound. Of well, wow. you know, the doctor takes this little baby he just delivered, puts him in a kidney tray, hands him to my mother, and says, it's not viable, dispose of it. Which meant mm-hmm. just it's medical waste, put it in the incinerator. Mm. And he goes back to finish the operation. My mother's looking at this little baby boy, and he's still breathing. And she doesn't know what to do, so she's praying on the way out to the service area, what do I do? So she, and she had, comes up with an idea. So she finds a washcloth, wraps this little baby up in the washcloth, puts him back in the kidney tray, walks back in the operating room, and puts him on top of the sterilization unit because it's the only warm place in the room. And the baby doesn't make a peep. Uh, anybody that's worked with preemies knows that most of the time they're, they're silent. And, um, and so her plan is, I'm going to wait till the baby dies and then I can obey the doctor because there's no way that I'm going to put a breathing baby in the incinerator. Mm. So the doctor thinks it's all been taken care of. He finishes the operation and he leaves. The head nurse takes Mrs. Munn to post-op for recovery, leaving my mother to do the cleanup is what she does. The baby was born May the 30th, 1946 at 8.30 p.m. Mm. At, at, uh, at 8.30, at 9.30 my mother's done the cleanup. She sits in the operating room just holding this baby, waiting for him to die. At uh, 9.30, the doctor meets with the parents and says, I'm sorry, I have bad news. Um, when your son was uh, delivered, he was not viable and uh, did not survive. So the parents are now grieving the, the death of their sixth child. Mm. Um, mm. My mother is still in the operating room holding this baby. The doctor goes home. Wow. The head nurse goes home. And, it, and she just waits. Well, 9 30, 10 30, 30, 12 at 1.30 in the morning, she says to herself, I should really tell somebody about this, and um, calls the head nurse who had assisted and tells her what she did. And the head nurse says, we are in so much trouble, but she has to call the doctor. The doctor comes rushing in from home. He is livid, mm-hmm. and he rips into this insubordinate, rebellious, who does he, she think she is, wannabe nurse and tears her apart and says, you created this problem, you're now responsible for it, but don't you dare say anything to the parents. 
So the hospital, mm. whoever knew about this, was put on code of silence for two days. For two days, my mother takes this little baby up to the nursery, and they feed him and hold him around the clock, and, and he loses four ounces because wow. preemies often lose weight. And wow. what's the doctor thinking? It's almost been three days, and the doctor's thinking the baby's going to die. Right. And as soon as, the, as soon as the baby dies, yep. we'll just sweep it under the rug, Problem put a silent, nobody yeah. has to be the wiser. Yeah. Well, the baby starts to pick up weight. And as soon as the baby starts picking up weight, the doctor knows he has to say something to the parents. So he meets with the parents, and he basically says, um, we didn't want to give you any false hope because when your son was delivered, he truly was not viable. Um, and even if he did survive, he would have significant medical issues. Um, but due to the miracles of modern medicine, we've managed to sustain him and uh, keep him alive. Yeah. And uh, he says nothing about what my mom did. Right. And he and and at the in that moment, they're just thrilled because they have a son, mm. and they name him Harold, which means good news. Mm. And that afternoon, Harold's dad takes him in one hand and baptizes him with an eyedropper <laughs> because wow. he fully expects him to die. Yeah. But he's he's able to have this moment with his son. Well, two weeks later, Mrs. Munn goes home. Uh, back in the day, he stayed in the hospital, you know, a long time after a C-section. Mm -hmm. And then two weeks later, or uh, let's see, two months later, little tiny Harold goes home to his parents, basically in a shoebox. Mm. And two years later, my mother, along with all the other nurses in the nursery, get an invitation to his second birthday. Mm. And the nurses are just like, we haven't heard what's going on. We, But they didn't know that the parents, uh, Reverend and Mrs. Munn had been asking the doctor in the hospital, like, what really happened here? They couldn't figure out the timeline, mm. and the doctor in the hospital, Code of Silence, didn't tell them anything. Well, the nurses, along with my mother, all go to the second birthday party, and my mom says, we're looking around trying to figure out which one's Harold, and finally I'm realizing, that's Harold right there, and he's running around mm. with all the other kids. Yeah. And um, it looks perfectly normal. She says nothing. So she graduates, moves to central Canada, goes to Bible school in Saskatchewan, where she meets my dad. They get married. They take a little church up in northern Alberta where I'm born. Mm -hmm. And then when I'm 10 months old, the three of us move to the highlands of New Guinea, where my parents are, are pioneer missionaries in, in New Guinea. And um, we come back to Canada a little before I'm 10 years old. My dad's an itinerant pastor. We move around. I graduate high school in northern British Columbia, up near Alaska, mm. and my mother, working in the hospital, reads an obituary in an Anglican newsletter for a Bishop Munn who had passed away, and she was curious, and she happened to be working with an Anglican nurse and said, did you know this Bishop Munn? And the gal says, yeah, actually very well. I, I worked with the First Nations people with him in Alberta and uh, British Columbia, and my mom's still not sure. She goes like, did, did they have any children? Yes, one son, Harold. My oh. mom says, really, do you know where he is? She said, no, last I heard, he's a missionary teacher in West Africa, remarkable young man. So, Paul, this and is a perfect time to try. Okay. I know the rest of the story. Yeah, it's amazing. So we'll pick it up when we come back. The rest of the story, which is an amazing story. We'll be back in just a minute. <laughs> 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Okay, we're back on the Georgine Rice Show. Joanne Fuso here with Paul Young. Paul was in the middle of a fascinating story. Uh, and uh, Paul, why don't you share the rest of that story with us? Yeah. I, what was the name of that guy who used to say? That, yeah, what was that guy? Uh, Paul Harvey, yes. Yeah, Paul Harvey. Right. Yep. So, um, so my mother had uh, had heard, you know, that there, that Harold was alive, mm. and uh, but didn't know how to get in touch with him. And she didn't say anything for another ten years, because I was seventeen at the time when she had read that obituary. But uh, uh, ten years later, I'm twenty seven, living in Portland, married to Kim. We have a couple kids, and um, my mother reads another obituary, mm. and um, you know, I guess a you get to the place where you're just making sure you're not in them. Right. Yes. And, uh, but she read, guess who died? The doctor. Mm. So the, the doctor mm. died. Mm. And this is the first time when she found out that the doctor was dead, it's the first time she told any of us this mm. story. Wow. None of us had ever heard this, including my dad. Mm. He had never even told my dad. Mm. And, um, you know, old school, mm. code wow. of violence, That's the whole amazing. thing. Yeah. And, um, but now, you know, the yeah. doctor's dead and he's not coming back. So it's like open season. And mm. uh, my mother decides to track Harold down and she found him. Mm. He was now the senior pastor of the Anglican Church in Victoria, B.C., just down the road from where his father had pastored in 1946. Mm. And for six, six months, my mother does nothing. Um, be- mm. Because here's her, here's her dilemma. How do I tell Harold the truth about his birth without him thinking, I'm just looking for credit, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that was her dilemma. So mm. Christmas came that year, and she wrote this beautiful letter to Harold and wrapped up the story of his birth inside the story of the coming of a son who would change the world, Jesus. Huh. So she put his story and Jesus' story together as a Christmas story. Mm. And sent it to him in the mail. And he had well, no, he, he, was on, he himself didn't he, even he know, didn't know the story of, no, yeah. he had no clue. So, so immediately he's on the phone to her saying, we need to talk. So <laughs> my dad and mom meet Harold and his wife. And my mom tells Harold the truth about his birth. And meanwhile, both of his parents had passed away, not knowing. And, uh, and she tells him and he says, you know, my whole life, we knew there was a mystery about my birth, but nobody had ever been able to tell me. And, um, and now he knows. And he's just blown away. So as you can imagine, my mom and Harold have, been quite, have become quite close. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, anytime Harold was coming through or in the area in British Columbia where they lived, mm. um, uh, he would drop in. He would go out of his way to spend some time with her just to uh, – it was – it was just this connection, this bond. Well, mm. one time my mom's talking to Harold on the phone, and, and, and she says, Harold, I have this son, and um, he wrote this book, <laughs> and I tried to read it, but I'm having a problem with it. And she said, and I'm not even going to tell you what it is. I just, I just wanted to tell somebody that I was having a problem with it. And uh, Harold says, well, Bernice, why, do, why don't you let me read Paul's book, and I'll tell you what I think. Oh, would you do that? You know, that's my mm-hmm. mom. And, um, and he says, sure. So Harold reads The Shack, and he sends me an email. And he said, Paul, I read your book, 
And uh, he said, I don't know if you knew this, but your mom was having a real problem with it. Um, and I think I know what it is. I think it's the imagery that you use for God the Father. Mm. He said, you need to know that I love everything about this book. I think it's absolutely fantastic. But I'm going to see if I can do something about the issue that your mom has. So Harold blind copies me on an email to my mother mm. and, and says, Dear Bernice, I read Paul's book. You need to know that I really love this book, but I think I know what you're struggling with. It's the imagery that, you use, that he used for God the Father, a, a large black African-American woman. Mm. And uh, he said, let me tell you why that imagery is so important to me. And Harold lays it out. And he says, you know... It is orthodox Christian theology of, of every sort, whether it's orthodox, Catholic, Protestant. We all have agreed that God is not more masculine than feminine, that the image of God is male-female, that there is lots of imagery for God as masculine, but there is lots for feminine as well. And, uh, and he said, you know, um, we have in the West, definitely masculinized God in such a way that we've lost the maternal nature of God. And, um, and he, so he starts talking about how imagery was never intended to define God. Uh, it was intended mm-hmm. to be a window through which we could apprehend some element of the character and nature mm-hmm. of God. So we can say, well, God is a rock mm-hmm. and a strong tower and a shield. You know, all of those are inanimate objects. They're, they're not even right. alive. right. But when somebody says God is a rock, you know what we're talking right. about. Imagery, yeah. You know, or God is a shield, God is a tower. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but God can be a lion or an eagle or a mother hen. You know, mm-hmm. I sometimes laugh and tell people, I suppose I could have had the papa come through the door as a big hen, but I just don't know if it would have done <laughs> the same thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, and it wouldn't have. Right. But uh, so uh, God can be an animal, can be a bird, can be... Um, uh, can be a shepherd, can be a woman um, who loses a coin, can be um, a nursing mother in Isaiah. Right. And we don't, we don't realize, a lot of us, just because of the limitations of English sometimes, right. that, um, that most of the verbs about God, the actions of God, the beingness of God, most of the verbs of the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, are feminine. Mm. And uh, most of the nouns are masculine. Mm. Um, when we're introduced to the Holy Spirit as Ruach in verse 2 of Genesis, it's feminine. And it maintains its feminine quality throughout, throughout Scripture. When wisdom, who is equated to Jesus oftentimes, the wisdom of the person of wisdom of the Old Testament, it's a woman. And, um, and you know, we know in Scripture that God the Father has a womb which bothers some people. In fact, mm. the translators had a, had a problem with it. And there's a word in the Greek for womb, which is kolpon, K-O-L-P-O-N. And it's used all over the place. Uh, mm. Luke likes it because he's a doctor. So he talks about how John the Baptist leaped in his mother's womb mm. and um, uh, in his mother's kolpon. And, but he uses it in the story of Nicodemus, uh, John does. Um, how can a man go back into his mother's womb you know, uh, and he's talking about um, being born from above, and um, and he uses Kolpon. Well, in John one eighteen, it says, "No one has seen God except the only begotten, 
who was hidden in the father's coal pond. And, um, mm. you know, it was mm. translated as bosom mm. or mm. who knows what else. But the word is actually Whoa. womb. And the picture is, is that Jesus moves from the womb, the loving embrace of the father, the womb of the father to the womb of Mary. And it's a beautiful picture. Mm. So, so here... So uh, what you're saying, God doesn't have to be an out. old man with a white beard. Basically, correct. You know, I was trying to get as far away from that as possible. Gandalf with an attitude, you know, right. and uh, and so um, I just used imagery that fit mm. the character and nature of God better than the old white bearded grandfather. Right, and um, and so Harold lays this all out in this letter, and and here's the beautiful thing about the story. Yes, here's the, the punch punchline, as it were. My mother saved a one-pound baby boy in 1946, who decades later became the man that was able to build a bridge for her so that she yeah. could cross it to her own son. Right. That's so yeah. incredible. incredible. That is a God who is good, who is a weaver, um, who is respectful of our mm. limitations, mm-hmm. um, and yet still works purposes into, into the situations and, and instances of our lives. Now there's and another the part scene, of this you know? story that we're gonna yes, we'll have to is. switch away here. But there's another part of the story that I think takes place at a church service, if I'm not in Victoria. Yes. yes. So we're gonna pull oh. away for a moment here and then come back for the uh, the uh, crescendo That's in my mind the of the story. The rest of the the rest of the rest of the story. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. We're back again on the Georgine Rice Show. This is Joe and Fuso. With uh, Paul Young, Paul's in the middle of telling an amazing story, and in this uh, final part of the story, uh, Paul, in some ways, is going to respond to my initial question about the preeminence of love over allegiance to any particular part of the body of Christ or adherence to any non-essential doctrine, doctrinal beliefs. And so, Paul, I hand it back to you. Yeah. Uh, our unity is in Jesus, and it, it can't be built anywhere else. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, we've we've divided ourselves so much. We have what forty thousand denominations. Right. So we've pro- we've proven that we have a capacity <laughs> to divide. Mm-hmm. And and Jesus, you know, the call of of the high priestly prayer, the whole John fourteen through seventeen section. Yeah. That that is like, look, this is about our union. This is, you know, I want the love that is. Mm-hmm. You and I have to be in them, and them in us. Mm-hmm. And um, John fourteen twenty is probably the, the pivotal verse of the New Testament in the sense that it tells us the three things that the Holy Spirit is going to teach us. And he, and this is Jesus' words. He says the three things are: I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And you don't know it, you don't understand it, you can't see it, you're about to run away, you're going to think that I'm alone, but I'm never alone because the Father is with me. Mm. This is a God who doesn't do abandonment, you can't get away from. And um, so, you know, I have an aunt who lives in Victoria, and uh, she had actually gone into nurses training at the same time that my mom did, but she bailed out about three months into it and became a teacher. And um, Mm. her her name's Ruby, but she likes to be called... Uh, Tess, and um, <laughs> and uh, she uh, she sort of adopted a British kind of uh, lifestyle, and she was the wild child in my mom's family. She mm. was uh, the outlier, 
Um, my favorite aunt. She's the one that took me to my first movie when it was totally against the rules. <laughs> and uh, back when, you know, movies were were completely that, which would, right. if, if the rapture if happened, you were, well, you're, you're, you're not theater, going, yeah. You're not going, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, um, um, Ruby is, um, my mom's been trying to, you know, lead her back to Jesus for 50 years. And, and um, one night, uh, my mom's down in Victoria visiting her, and uh, Ruby, uh, or my mom says to Ruby on a Saturday night, you know, Ruby, would you like to go to church tomorrow? And Ruby says, sure. My mom goes like, you, you would? <laughs> and what's so, uh, uh, where do you want to go? And Ruby thinks for a second, she says, why don't we, why don't we uh, go hear Harold? Because, you know, Harold's in town, but none of them had been to his church. You know, you have to understand something. We come from modern evangelical fundamentalists. That is, you know, low church, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and this is Anglican. And when I was growing up, Anglican was almost not a Christian. And, uh, mm-hmm. um, but they were, you know, it's a high church. Liturgical, long, yeah. Very liturgical. They wear the vestments. They, mm-hmm. they swing a censer and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those places where... Uh, it's really easy to spot someone who really doesn't know what they're doing. And um, so my mom and Ruby slip into the back row, and uh, and this woman immediately realizes these two have no clue. So she slides in next to my mom to help them. You know, I'll, I'll tell you when to stand and sing and, mm. you know, kneel or whatever. And um, so it's all good. Well, halfway through the sermon, uh, the homily, um, Harold spots my mother, and he stops, and he says, Folks, um, I need to tell you something. There's a woman here. If it wasn't for her, I would not be alive. Um, mm-hmm. She saved my life, and I need, I need to tell you that story. In fact, every person that I have ever touched in my life, she has touched through me. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. um, so he then tells, it, he tells his people the story of his birth mm-hmm. and how that all happened, and introduces my mom, mm. and um, and then uh, he goes back to finish the homily, and he finishes the sermon. At the end of which, everyone then goes up to the front for communion, and um, and the woman next to my mother mistakenly says to her, "I am so sorry, dear, but um, in in our congregation, you have to be a member to participate in communion." And uh, like I say, I'm I'm kind of glad she wasn't sitting next to Tess. <laughs> so, so my mom, she she says, "Oh, no problem, no worry. I I understand different faith cultures. It's not a, it's no. Uh, I'm not offended whatsoever." And she wasn't. Mm-hmm. So Harold finishes serving communion, and then he takes off his outer garment uh, until he's just wearing his smock, and he walks over and he picks up the communion, picks up the bread. And he picks up the cup and he walks down the steps from um, the pulpit area and all the way to the back. And he kneels down in front of my mom and in front of Ruby. Mm. And in that moment, mm. you know, all, whether, you're, um, whether you're a seeker, whether you're agnostic, whether you're, you know, Anglican, whether you're Christian Missionary Alliance, Mm-hmm. Um, Baptist, uh, it just doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. What matters is a broken body mm-hmm. and shed blood. This is 
This is everything else just fades out. And this is, this is my body that was broken for you. And, and this is my blood um, that, that was a remission of sin. And, and that's the point of our union. That's the celebration of our unity. It is Jesus and only Jesus. Yeah, I love that story, Paul. Love that story. There's a lot, a lot of meat in that story. Uh, yeah, well, you know, my mom passed on New Year's Eve day last, wow. and uh, this year, mm. and uh, the day before this year, and Harold and I did her memorial service. Together. Oh, wonderful! And um, wow, yeah. And How like old I, is he I now, my, Harold? He, uh, Harold, he's nine years older than me, and I'm sixty-three, so he's seventy-two. Early seventy. And um, yeah. yeah, my mom was nine ninety when she passed. Yeah, and. Um, and like I say, you know, she now knows me better than she ever did. Right. And, uh, <laughs> so I'm sure she's, yeah. but she's met a lot of our friends. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I got another question for you that does kind of tie into your story and what we were just talking about. We're probably going to come up on a break here fairly soon, so I'll ask the question, and then maybe you can get started and finish the answer when we come back. But So I think okay. most Christ followers understand the difference between religion and a genuine personal relationship with Christ. At the same time, there is a lot of what I think could accurately be called religious behavior in the church world. How would you define religion in a Christian context, and why do you think some self-identified Christians settle for religion versus a vibrant relationship with Christ? That is another great question. I, I think fundamentally that we have such a low view of ourselves that we go back to performance orientation. Mm-hmm. We, we don't actually believe that God is trustworthy mm-hmm. um, or that he is good. Mm-hmm. And, um, and therefore trust is not our option. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're attracted to religion because we can, we have a sense that we can perform our way mm-hmm. into the affection and the approval of God and the community of faith. And, um, and the journey that we're truly on is one of learning how to trust, mm-hmm. because uh, mm-hmm. trust and control are two polar extremes. You know, the, it's, how are you going to deal with fear? You're either going to trust or you're going to control. A lot of us who are performance-oriented mm-hmm. and shame-based, mm-hmm. we're attracted to religion because mm-hmm. we don't actually have to trust God. Yeah. We um, can stay in control. We get to, we get to, yeah, we get to perform. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and so it's, it's much more about control and performance than a relational sense of trust. And, and this becomes sort of obvious when things go sideways in our lives and we start freaking out. And, um, and, and that exposes the, the, the fact that this has been not about trust. This has been about a sense of control. Mm-hmm. So I think at the heart of a lot of our attraction to religion and yep. religious performance. I agree. Because it, it feels like it's something that we can control. Yes. Yep. And, and you don't have, you know, I can Boy. prove that yeah. I'm worthy of your love. And it's really that trust that opens up into the abundant life that Jesus promised us, something religion yeah, can never provide. Scary. Yeah. Well, it's, we're going to transition away here again, and uh, I'll be back with another question for you, Paul Young. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back to the Georgine Rice Show. Joe Anfuso here with our special guest, Paul Young. Paul, it's been great talking with you here. I've got a couple more questions for you. And uh, 
uh, I, I, I'm looking forward to your response to this one. Uh, here's the question. Uh, there seem to be a, a, actually a growing number of people who've become disillusioned with what some call the institutional church. And in some cases, they're not only disillusioned, but angry. And I think we all know people who are in that place. Uh, and what would you say to folks who still consider themselves Christians, but are disillusioned, even angry with the institutional church? Something that might help them move beyond just being critics to re-entering the race and contributing again to God's purposes in the world. Yeah, and I, th- I think the word disillusion is a good word because the only way to be disillusioned is to have illusions to begin with. And um, a lot of us have placed um, a set of expectations on an institutional system that cannot, cannot provide a relational integrity of life together. It, it mm-hmm. just can't. Mm-hmm. Um, the church was never intended to be an institutional system. It was a, it was a community of, of mm-hmm. people in relationship with, with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so as an institution, uh, religious systems are an easy target. It's easy to be a critic of, of religion, um, mm-hmm. uh, especially in a world where the Internet and, and communication has torn down the wall of, uh, of information um, segmenting. That is, you know, it used to be that, that we could keep our little group isolated from everyone else. And uh, you can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Someone, if you say something, someone can go and Google it to find out if mm-hmm. if what you're saying has any merit. Mm-hmm. And um, so the world has completely changed. At the same time, there's been a revel- revelation of so many injustices and wrong activities, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, dysfunction and abuse within right. and, and the politics of institutional systems. And so, mm-hmm. you know, people thought it was going to be something different than that, and suddenly it turns out not to be, mm-hmm. uh, and, and they're disillusioned, and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. But again, it's like, what, what did you think it was supposed to be? Because don't, don't place expectations on a, on a system um, that cannot, it's not mm-hmm. something living. It, mm-hmm. it is the incorporation of um, people's energies and times, and, and they bring all their their damage to that as much as anything else. So at the same time, we are not designed to live in isolation. Mm -hmm. We're designed to live in community. Mm -hmm. We're made in the image of a God who's never been alone. And so there's a draw toward relationship and the integrity of relationship. Mm -hmm. So we're in this transitional time, and I think it's reformational. That is, I think the Holy Spirit is behind this. Mm -hmm. That is to say, all right, I'm going to bring you out of your boxes and I'm going to free you up to love in a way that is incarnational. That is, it's actually Christ and you loving in a world. And, um, and to do that, we've got to tear down some of the structures. I have, a, I have a, this little saying that I think I got from the Holy Spirit. And uh, I, I laugh and say, well, if they ever rewrite the Bible, I think this will be in it. <laughs> and, um, and it's the only time you'll find God in a box is because he wants to be where we are. Yeah, you know, yeah. and I've so heard you say that. I love that. if if the Holy Spirit is leading you to be part of an institutional structure right now today, mm-hmm. then then be there, but not as the voice of dissension. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. be there as the presence of love there, mm-hmm. and 
And if you cannot abide the structure and the politics and all of that kind of stuff, step outside. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Holy Spirit has never been limited by the systems that human beings have created. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, but again, um, you have a right to be angry. There is a, a lot of things that were promised that just could not, could not happen within the structured systems. They just mm-hmm. can't. And, um, and at some point, we have to get beyond that to go like, okay, so what are the things that are real and true and good and right? Yeah. And, um, you know, and I, I, I don't have a problem being with a community of people who meet in a building and all of that kind of stuff, but that building was supposed to serve them, not them serve the building. Mm-hmm. And um, just mm-hmm. like Jesus saying about the Sabbath, you know, mm-hmm. when um, he's accused by the religious people about his disciples violating the Sabbath, his response is, look, the Sabbath was made for man, mm-hmm. not man for the Sabbath. Yep. Well, that turns everything on its head. That means, you know, um, marriage was made for human beings, not human beings for marriage. Mm-hmm. It's like um, these things are not to, to rule us, and therefore you can tamper and change institutional structures and systems so that they actually are something that is helpful. Right. And Because uh, you, you can get things done um, as a community of people that you don't have the capacity to do as just a person alone. You know, I saw so I recently really, really good things to, about that. I recently yeah. saw this uh, uh, teaching on YouTube by Francis Chan, who many people I think listening would know who he is, and he had been the pastor of a church of four thousand people in California, and uh, you know people perceived him as a very successful man of God. He'd written books. Uh, Christian media was after him for interviews. You know, what's the secret of your success? And he he reached this point where he realized that. The structure that he was in, you know, as the the person people were looking to to feed them and 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 equip them, not really equip them, actually just feed them, and in, in some cases entertain them, uh, was not what he wanted to be a part of anymore. So he he walked away from that structure, and now he's uh, meeting in very small groups and homes and and uh, starting other home groups where. People can actually love one another, get to know one another, be in a real authentic community, and also reach out as participants, not just spectators, you know, in a a certain kind of, you know, church system. So I guess the heart of my question was, you know, um, yes, the anger, the disillusionment is understandable and maybe even appropriate, but how do, how do people get unstuck? You know, Francis Chan, I think he got disillusioned, but he didn't check out. He didn't walk away. You know, he didn't just, you know, throw darts, you know, he, at the institutional he did, church. He did, he did walk away. He did walk yeah, away. Yes, but he didn't. Structural. He walked away into something, you know. Uh, right, right, right. And, and, and I, think, I think we need to be disillusioned when mm-hmm. we put a set of expectations into an institutional structured system as if that was going to be the life of Jesus to us. Mm-hmm. And um, and it never it never can be it just can't right um, and so to say all right all right what is what is the Holy Spirit saying to me about my involvement right uh, inside the world that I am face yes. to face with yes you know nobody exactly. can answer that right you. if it's to be a part of it then be a life giving part of it not yeah. to the institution but to the community of people that you're a part of right and if it's to step outside of it step outside in freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, and 
go like, okay, so what's the adventure here? Right. And the the movement of the spirit is to always draw us toward community. Mm-hmm. Um, the to invest in the relationships that are actually right in front of us and a part of our lives. Mm-hmm. That's the church functioning. Mm-hmm. And the work of the church, you know, um, my friend Baxter Kruger, who's a theologian, mm-hmm. has written fantastic books, including The Shack Revisited. Um, but, you know, he had a, he had a pastor call him up and, and um, ask him about, you know, what is the work of the church and, and Baxter says, you know, he said, when I was in your service, I saw your bulletin, and it had all these different meetings and things that you were having. He said, you're confusing um, organized activity for the work of the church. He said, if you wanted to list the work of the church, take a, take a scroll and write on it what every person in your community is doing inside their world, whether they're a plumber, mm-hmm. they're a doctor, right. they're a, a garbage collector, a mom, a grandmother, exactly. uh, you know, and start writing these. He said, you'll have, you'll have the work of the church unscroll, and it'll go blocks down the street. That, that's where real life is happening. Amen. And see, what the institution has done, it's taken away our authority to, to live inside of our own humanity in the world. Right. And it has segmented religious activity toward a structure and a building and all that. Right. That's supposed to be that which empowers us to be the life of Jesus in the world. Amen. You know? and Amen. That we can hear for ourselves, etc. Amen. I love that. And we'll be back in just one more minute with a final question for Paul Young. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back on the Georgine Rice Show for the su- final segment of this of this show. I'm Joe Anfuso here with Paul Young. And uh, I have a final question for you, Paul, and looking forward to your answer to this. Several years ago, I, I wrote a book called The Best Story of Your Life that centered around a, a theme that I call serendestiny. Uh, it's a kind of a word I made up. Serendipity, most people know what that is. Phenomenon, Webster defines it as the phenomenon of experiencing things not anticipated or sought for, usually pleasant surprises. And I define serendestiny as the phenomenon of discovering one's destiny by responding with faith and obedience to God-ordained circumstances not anticipated or sought for. So I wanted, and I think that's often how God's plan for our life unfolds. It's not us sitting down and mapping it out and working the plan. You know, it's God intervening again and again, big ways and small ways, often just in our everyday lives to reveal his plan, his purpose for us. And how we respond really determines the outcome of our life. So I wanted to ask you if you could share some examples. I mean, the Shaq story, how that book came into existence is a big example of something you weren't anticipating or seeking for, kind of transforming your life and leading you into amazing opportunities to be be used by God all over the world. But I thought you could also maybe share some some other examples, just more recent and from your everyday life of of God intervening in ways you didn't expect, didn't anticipate, weren't seeking for, that somehow led you into what he had in mind. Yeah, and and what he has in mind is an ongoing conversation, because I really don't know. Right. And um, and you know, what is happening in my world today is a result of things that have happened day by day throughout my history, and um, and I couldn't have predicted these things. Right. And and 
I think that's part of the point that you're trying to make. Yeah. We don't know. And, no. um, and that's, that's a beautiful, you're back to trust. Mm-hmm. You can either, you can either create an agenda to accomplish what you think right. is in your best interest, mm-hmm. or you can trust that there's a God who's active and involved in your life, who's going to unfold, um, purpose, uh, from a perspective that is outside of your box. And, mm-hmm. The latter is much more exciting and mm-hmm. scarier as mm-hmm. well because it involves the risk of trust. Um, uh, uh, and, and, and frankly, I think we're designed to be the child who ends up in purpose without knowing how they got there. And, you know, mm-hmm. we get to be the child. We don't get to become the adult who then knows what they're doing and has mm-hmm. got it all worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a day-by-day response. Uh, to, to yes. what's in front of us, and let let destiny unfold itself, and mm. and because destiny is is not an uh, an end, mm-hmm. it is a description of of one point along the process, right? You know, because uh, um, I can't even predict how tomorrow will unfold, right. you know, right. or that I'll I might not even be alive by tomorrow. Yes, exactly. So for me, this whole conversation is wrapped inside the phrase learning to live inside the grace of just one day. Mm-hmm. I, think you, I think you get grace for one day uh, at a time. Uh, sufficient to the day is the grace thereof. Take no thought for tomorrow. Um, and, uh, and that is, you know, don't, don't give tomorrow all your energy. Mm-hmm. You know, be mm-hmm. a person who responds to what's in front of you rather than to a perceived agenda mm-hmm. or an outcome. Yep. You know, I, I'm not in charge of destiny. I don't want to be in charge of destiny. Uh, it'll just create a whole bunch of expectations that I can fail and, um, and, and, and limit uh, the possibilities. Because exactly. I have a limited imagination. I have a limited mind. And I would rather use my imagination to respond to what's in front of me than to try to figure out, you know, what am I supposed to be down the road? Right, um, right. And... And so those things are all wrapped up together. So uh, let, let me give you an example of how something unfolds at, Great. in the course of how my life works. Yep. So I, you know, I get on a flight, um, and I've <laughs> flown a lot. And sometimes, you know, I like a window seat because then I can lean against the window and crash. Uh, get, get a, not literally crash. Right. You know, <laughs> um, but just go to sleep. <laughs> <Got> and <it>. um, <laughs> bad. Bad use of a word when talking about flying. We got just a couple um, of minutes here, Paul. So I I, I think I even know the story, and I was hoping you'd tell it, but we got just a short amount of time. So you got to land the plane kind of soon. Okay. So we've got, um, I'm I'm walking onto the flight, and there's a a woman, four four people in front of me, and I just have this nudge like, oh, I'm sitting next to her. And and I don't don't get those nudges all the time. I just happened to be in this, I was in Asheville, North Carolina. And, um, and it was a little small plane, 23-minute flight to Atlanta from Asheville. And um, this, uh, sure enough, the gal stops on row four, and I've got the window seat, and I say, excuse me, I'm on the window. And, um, and meanwhile, I, pulled a, I had one copy of the shack with me, and I thought, oh, maybe this is an opportunity to just give her a copy of the book or whatever. And she stops, puts her bags down. I step over her bags, but didn't do it in an agile kind of way. My foot clips into her first strap and I just go headlong um, and I end up with the book right in her face because I'm trying to catch my balance and all that um, as I sprawl out across the seat. Well, I apologize and 
she laughed and I stick the book in the, the pocket in front of me in the seat and um, we get settled in. She turns to me and she says, you're not actually going to read that book, are you? <laughs> and I thought, well, this is good. I said, well, actually, I've read it. Have, have you? She said, yes, I hated it. Mm. I said, really? What didn't you like about it? And it was like I opened up a machine gun nest, you know, and she mm. just started coming after it. Like, mm. it, it, it just is, I didn't like the way that it portrayed the Trinity. I didn't like, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Finally, she, she takes a breath, and I go like, can I ask you a question? What was it about the Trinity that you didn't like? And she thought for a second, and she said, you know, I don't, I don't really remember, but... And now she's after it again. But this time, her, her statement sounded more like uh, she was coming after me as a person, although she didn't mm. know I was the author. <laughs> and um, and the, the next time she takes a little break, I went, can I ask you a question? Do you know the author? Because she was saying things that were very personal about mm. me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she goes, no. And then... It's as close to seeing a light bulb show up above her head, you know. Uh, <laughs> she looks at me and she goes, she goes like, uh, you're not the author. <laughs> uh, and I went, yeah, I am. She goes, no, you're not. Uh, I said, yes, no, no, I, I actually am. She said, no, you're not. I had to show her my driver's license and my Delta SkyMiles card and two credit cards. And, and we haven't even taken off yet, right? This mm-hmm. is all while people are getting on the flight. And uh, she, puts, she leans back and she goes, this is such a God thing. No. And I'm thinking, like, what do, what do you even mean what? by that? But mm. I said, look, don't worry about it. I said, um, you know what? I don't even care about the book and all that kind of stuff. I'm really curious how you ended up sitting next to me on this <laughs> flight right. out of Asheville to Atlanta. And she starts telling me about how a year and a half before this, she was, she was down and out. She lost her family, lost her marriage. She was an addict. She was on the streets. She was homeless. And she was about to kill herself when a, mm-hmm. when a hellfire and damnation street preacher came through town and introduced her to Jesus, and it literally saved her life. Mm-hmm. And, and she was now holding on to that Jesus that he had presented with every piece of strength she had, mm-hmm. bare-knuckling it. And, um, and I said to her, you know, I'm so excited for you. You're on the the greatest adventure a human being can experience, and and this this um, fire inside of you it, it will serve you well. And I said, you know, I've been I've been walking with Jesus for a lot of years, and and if God was sitting right here next to you today, I think I know what He'd say to you. And she said, what? And I put my hand on her shoulder and I said, relax. And tears just start running down mm. her face. Mm. And, and I said, uh, you know, you're okay. It'll be all right. Mm. And we talk for about, you know, the 23-minute flight. Mm-hmm. And then she gets up, she gives me a hug, and she says, I'll read it again. I said, I don't even care if you read it again. Mm. Um, I'm, just, I'm just so thrilled that we had this opportunity to be together. So she goes her way, I go my way, and Atlanta airport's like a whole city by itself. Right. And about 20 minutes later, I'd stop for something. But then I got on the train, and she walks onto the train, and she goes, Paul! Like, <laughs> like we're <laughs> old friends, long-life friends, you know? <laughs> and, and it was like that. Yeah. It had just torn all this stuff aside. And saying, yeah. like, you know what? We're in this together. Mm. And you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to even like what I've written. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. Here, here's what matters: there is a God who is good all the time, involved in the details of our lives. 
Well, that is kind enough that we would be together. Amen. That's a great book. End to our time together. The difference between love and religion. It's been a pleasure being with you, Paul. I look forward to our next time together. You're in my neck of the woods now. Absolutely. And I really enjoyed it. Honored to be with you. Thank you so much for being here with with all of us. God bless. God bless you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.